why you need to listen up then. Fantastic. So, um, just a little bit of background. Paul, who wrote the book of Philippians, which is what we're working through um, in this series, basically kind of had every reason not to be happy. So he had problems. He'd basically decided that he wanted to go and preach in Rome. And on his way to Rome, he'd got shipwrecked. You know, and in those days, it was you know, pretty bad. Just massive ship, waves, shipwrecked on this island with no food. And you know, anyone seen Survive, those Survivor films? You know, it's, it's hardcore, isn't it? And then when he's on the island, he gets bitten by a snake as well. So he's got problems, and now he's got pain. And then, he's, and then on his way to Rome, he actually gets imprisoned in Rome under false charges. And he's effectively waiting on death row basically waiting to be executed for two years. And we know, don't we, for people that live on death row, the stress and the pressure of that situation can cause people to sweat blood, which is actually what Jesus did before he went to the cross. That, that pressure that he was under, that stress, was intense. And yet, he wrote a book on joy. He wrote Philippians while he was in that situation. He had basically the four biggest killjoys of life, which are pain, pressure, problems, and picky people <laughs> to contend with. So he had, he talks about in, in lots of other, in Corinthians, you know, he daily carries around his concern for all of his churches. And as in these verses we're going to look at, he had picky people to contend with. And actually, sometimes it's relational and people that causes the biggest killjoy in life. So in this chapter that we're going to look at, which is chapter 1, verses 12 to 30, we can see how Paul basically uncovers three secrets to have deep-seated joy and peace, regardless of the pain, the problems, the pressure, and the people. These are the four biggest killjoys in life. But Paul is going to give us today three ways to still have joy, even in the face of all of those things. Are you excited to read it? Yeah. Good. Right, we're going to read it all in one go, okay? <laughs> cool. And I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news. Everything that has happened to me has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Okay, that's his first secret. That's his first habit of happiness. The way to beat the killjoys of life is to see things from God's perspective Habit number one. If you're taking notes, that's a good thing to write down. Then he moves on in verse 15. <clears throat> it's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, because others preach about, but others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I've been appointed to defend the good news. But those others, the ones preaching out of jealousy and rivalry, do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my chains more painful to me. But listen up. But that doesn't matter. 
Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached either way. And so I rejoice, I rejoy myself, and I will continue to rejoice. I will rejoice. I make a decision, a choice to rejoy myself. And that's habit number two. Don't let other people rob your joy. Okay? Then moving on. Verse 19. For I know that as you pray for me and the Spirit of Jesus helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed. And I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. For I trust that my life will bring honour to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means Christ and dying is even better. Wow, that's habit number three, is trusting in God to work things out, to fully expect and hope and to know that God can turn things round for good. So let's look at habit number one, looking at every problem from God's point of view. So Paul basically had a dream. He was on his way to Rome to preach the gospel, to preach good news. Because in Rome, it was kind of like the centre of the, of the universe. It was the centre of the empire, the Roman empire in those days. It was kind of like I don't know, maybe New York or London. It's like a city of extreme importance, prestige, well-known people were there, lots of thinkers were there. So he's thinking, right, if I can preach in Rome, this is the biggest stage in the world, I'm going to make the biggest impact for Jesus and have the biggest influence for the gospel. This is why I'm going to Rome. I want to preach in Rome. But God had another idea. He actually turned up in Rome as a prisoner lowly, humbled, in chains. No stage, no public. God had another idea for him. He was chained 24 hours a day to a palace guard. And they changed guards every four hours. So that works out that over the two years, he would have talked to 4,380 guards that's quite funny, isn't it? You just think, man, who is actually the real prisoner here? <laughs> you know, he's chained to this, he's chained to this palace garden. He is telling them about Jesus and they can't go anywhere. <laughs> and he does it repeatedly until the entire household of Caesar knows about Jesus. And even some of the, you know, um, Nero's family become Christians as a result of Paul's witness. How amazing is that? Talk about turning that around for good. And I don't know how many... Others of you are a bit like me, is like you're a bit of an activator, like to get things done, like to move around, like to achieve. Do I, do where's John? Can't see him. There he is. <laughs> Need to achieve. Come on, let's do this thing. But actually, Paul was sat down. He couldn't go anywhere. He was chained to this prison guard and he literally had to sit down. And so what did he do in that time? He wrote most of the New Testament. Okay. So what do you think had the biggest impact for God? Who do you think knew better in this situation? Paul wanted to preach, didn't he, on the biggest stage, but God had different ideas. He was going to get Paul into the heart of politics, to the heart of Caesar's household, 
to have the biggest impact there amongst his family and also he was going to get him to write the New Testament when that situation so that generations, centuries, us later still benefiting. Billions of people have benefited from that. But it wouldn't have looked like that to Paul, would it? It would have looked rubbish. Well, worse than rubbish. Think of bad word, rubbish. <laughs> that sort of rubbish for him, like actually, you know, it's all very well for us now in the hindsight, looking back and thinking, oh yes, well God knew, God had a bigger perspective. But at that moment in time, you know, he's flipping in prison, chained to somebody, he had no privacy, he had, he had nothing. He was looking for, you know, execution was the only thing he was waiting for. You know, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? And yet, he wrote that book on joy. He wrote this. And what does he say? He says, I want you to know that everything has happened to me has helped spread the good news. Because he saw God's bigger perspective. He saw the bigger picture. He could see the purpose through the pain. Just a bit of an example from... Um, Christians Against Poverty, where I work, and um, in the early days, we had about 13 years, well, John had 15 years, of not being paid on time, and every single month was just like, oh, seriously, again, you know, we still haven't got the money at the beginning of the month to pay the salary of the staff, and we're just trusting in God that God would provide, and, you know, now, in hindsight, it's awesome, because it's like, oh, God provided, and it's miraculous, and it's awesome, but at the time, it's just like, oh, seriously, draining, and dull, do we really have to do this again? And obviously, you know, just a problem, a big problem, a constant problem that just wouldn't go away. It was there all the time. How do we solve this? Where's the next 50 grand going to come from? And yet, in hindsight, we can look back with a bigger perspective, God's perspective, and means that Christians Against Poverty has never had like these massive grants. No other direction, no other government has ever directed CAP. So we can talk about Jesus freely, and we still can. And we can say to this day that everything that we went through was to help spread the good news. Verse 12. Um, <clears throat> yeah, just thinking about... Um, so I've had, sort of had a thyroid illness for lots of years kind of get a bit bored talking about it but it does really affect it does affect me and um, I kind of did a talk recently about how through pain and problems God can paint the gold seams of humility and power and compassion into our lives and actually through those difficulties it can actually form gold in our characters that potentially couldn't be there if we didn't have those things that God can use those things to paint those really valuable stuff into our life. And at the end of the day, God cares more about our character than us having a more pleasant time, hard as it is to say. And through that talk, I know a lot of people contacted me afterwards and it, and it meant a lot to them. So in verse 14, many Christians have gained more confidence and become more bold because they're understanding a bit more of what they're going through. Um, another time when, uh, yeah, probably one of the biggest griefs in my life was um, when I miscarried twins. And, um, and when I look back on that time, it was, um, you know how like you can be totally grieving, full of grief, but then I look back on that time and also it was quite a special time in lots of ways because I kind of felt God really close to me. And 
You know how like you can have that jo- that sort of peace, inner deep-seated peace from God because you really know that God is close to you because he's just like a dad has come along and swept you up and when you're in pain and has and kind of given you that more love and attention and heavenly pieces. Oops, hello, what am I doing? I'm all right? Okay, I'm good. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not. Is it me? Is it my hair? Is that better? Okay, cool. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's kind of, that's the sort of miracle that can happen because actually when we know God and God lives inside us and that we've got his power, bless you, <laughs> in our lives, that's kind of the supernatural part of it, isn't it? That even though we are in pain and we are grieving, that God's unconditional peace and the peace that passes understanding and even joy can come is a supernatural thing. And that and how we carry ourselves as Christians through those tough times is potentially the best witness to our unbelieving friends and family and also to other Christians. I don't know if you've ever witnessed somebody that's really held themselves so well, and they will testify, won't they, that it's God's strength that's carrying them through it. But that is a major testimony, and that people can say, for everyone here knows it's because of Christ. I hear Paul says, I'm in chains, but it could be everyone here knows that Christ lives in me because they can see it more clearly. And other Christians look on and have more confidence and are encouraged in their faith because that person is an inspiration. Wow, they're going through that and yet they still have that joy and that peace. And that's only God, isn't it? That's supernatural. And pain can sometimes clear the way so that people can see God more clearly because it focuses us and our attention. C.S. Lewis once said that pain is God's megaphone to the world because we can hear God more clearly. We can see God when people are an inspiration, when they're carrying, they still have joy and they still have peace despite the problems and the pain. So I don't know what you are facing this morning, but... None of us are immune to pain and problems and pressure and picky people. So I kind of want you now just to kind of think of one thing that you're going through. And we're just going to pray that maybe right now God could help you see it from his point of view, from his perspective, from that godly perspective. Yeah, Father God, Lord, as we just bring to you these difficulties that we have in our lives, Lord God, this pain, pressure. Maybe somebody's upset us, Lord. Father, I just pray that you would lift our eyes out of the valley onto the mountain, Lord, to see from your point of view. Lord God, you are outside of time. You know the end from the beginning, Lord God. And Father, I just pray that you would help us see your perspective, Lord Jesus. Help us to see your bigger plan. Help us to see how you could be growing us, how you could be growing compassion in our lives, how you could be growing humility in our lives, Lord God. Lord, help us to see even how we are inspiring other people. 
and how you want it to be a witness, Lord God. Okay, so that's habit number one, was seeing things from God's point of view, our problems. And our habit two is don't let other people rob your joy. And sometimes the things that can really get you down is when relationship stuff can kind of really trample in your joy, can't it? Um, And Paul had his fair share of that as well. In verses 15 to 18... Paul talks about four different types of people that he had to contend with. He had to contend with comrades, competitors, critics, and conspirators. If we do the nice one first, (laughs) which is comrades. So if we look in verse 15 to 16. But others preach about Christ with pure motives. They preach because they love me, for they know I've been appointed to defend the good news. Hooray for friends, hooray for supporters, people that speak words of encouragement into our life, who support us, who we know are for us and with us and what we're doing. And we can be these people to everybody, can't we? Um, we To our brothers and sisters, we can speak that encouraging word that will bring joy into someone's life. You can be a joy giver. You can help your, well, anybody by giving an encouraging word to them. And just if you visualize it as actually, I'm helping them beat the kill joys of life because I'm planting a seed of joy in somebody else's life when I encourage them. So let's be a people that encourages others and be a comrade to other people. But then there's other people that will cause us problems and who rob our joy. If we look at verses 15 and 17, it's true that some are preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. Those these, those others, i.e. those people, do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely intending to make my chains more painful to me. And then there, there's sort of three types of people um, that Paul's that sort of lists there. Some competitors that were preaching out of jealousy and rivalry. They basically were obviously... They were looking on at Paul and comparing his impact and his success that he was having in the Christian world, I guess. And they wanted that significance for themselves. And they kind of competed to get it. And you may well have people in your life that compete with you. And you may not have realised that's actually what's happening. But if you think about people that kind of continually put you down, then they're actually competing with you because they're trying to put you down to raise themselves up. Whatever they're feeling, so that often people are doing that because they don't feel happy and content enough in themselves to just know that they're valued and content in themselves. So they have to look around and think, oh, I must be doing okay because I'm doing better than them. <laughs> yeah? So they'll put you down to raise themselves up. 
But in that situation, if you do feel like somebody is competing with you, you just have to kind of let that go because they're unhappy. You can't really do anything about their unhappiness. So you have to kind of put up a, sl- a, a shield of faith and just think, oh, well, they, you know, there's nothing I can do about their unhappiness. But what we can do ourselves is that we can make sure that we don't compete and we don't compare because competition comes out of comparison. And it never ends well when we start comparing ourselves to others. Either we want to push people down or we feel rubbish about ourselves. And whenever we compare, we're basically planting seeds of misery, seeds of discontent, seeds of dissatisfaction into our lives when we compare ourselves to other people. But we do it all the time, don't we? We just do it all the time, naturally, like about anything and everything, like what career we've got, whether they're progressing better than us, or they've got a better car than we've got, or she's like loads slimmer than I am, or I wish I had a full head of hair like that man, I'm trying to do the gen- both gender thing, <laughs> or she's much prettier than me, or... Oh man, you know, and we just we just do that comparison all the time without even thinking. But actually, as we're doing it, we are we've got to watch ourselves because we're planting seeds of discontent and dissatisfaction all the time in your life, aren't you? And we, you know, and we tend to compare people, you know, like we tend to compare ourselves to people like are in magazines and stuff that have been totally photoshopped anyway. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so you know, we tend to sort of think, oh. We end up feeling dissatisfied with our bodies and our lives and our relationships because we assume that everybody else is having this wonderful thing, don't we, on Facebook or whatever. Everyone's posting the best version of their life and we can compare ourselves. A bit cuter. I'm doing the comparison thing. And it just leads that kind of... It just leaves a bit of dissatisfaction and discontent, doesn't it? And you do it, you do it all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah, you just do it all the time. I'm trying to think of loads of other examples, but there are so many examples of it, isn't there? But the way to beat that killjoy of life is to be thankful and to be grateful for what we do have and not compare ourselves and not enter into that competition with other people. So that's competitors. Paul had competitors. Paul also had critics. Um, And we kind of know, don't we, that there's... Something can really rob your joy when you've been criticised, can't it? If people criticise you, it's a bit of a joy robber. It kind of sucks the joy out of life, doesn't it? Um, this is a silly example, but once I was in the Alhambra, right, with my team, and, um, <laughs> and right at the end, this person behind me, like, you know you're not supposed to take photos or anything, but this person behind me properly took this massive flash photo, like, totally obviously, and we kind of looked behind him and were just a bit like, wow brazen (laughs) and this guy basically like one of the theater people walked up to me properly told me off like you know you can't be taking photos in here I'm like uh it wasn't me it was person behind me and my colleagues were like yeah it's person behind no it wasn't it was you like this whole massive full-on thing I'm just like what (laughs) like total injustice I couldn't believe it and I was like, yeah. So, and I have to say, it did actually... We'd watched The Lion King, it had been awesome. But all I really remembered from that was how that guy just totally criticised me, unjustly, <laughs> as well. It robbed my joy. <laughs> but it can be really much... I mean, he's somebody I don't really know. He's somebody that I don't actually care about what he thinks about me. 
But it's harder, isn't it, when it's people that you love, that are close to you, criticise you. And often, we can be the hardest critics to people who we love. And, um, yeah, it can be really, really quite hurtful when people close to us criticise us in an unloving way. So we just need to be careful when we do... When we do need to say something, because of course we need to say stuff all the time in relationships, because we're working things out, aren't we? We're living, you know, with our closest people. We're living together. We're rubbing up iron sharpens iron. We're trying to make the other person better as well, aren't we? Um, I heard a great definition of love once, which is helping the other person become the best that they can possibly be, and celebrating them in that. But there's always going to be moments in time when you sort of say, "Oh, actually, can you not do that? Because it's kind of annoying," or whatever. <laughs> So if we do need to do something, let's just remember that criticism, I am totally talking to myself, God brings this up numerous times, but whenever we criticise people, we are actually placing a bit of an unhappy bomb in their life that, can, that we're kind of detonating, so we just need to be aware of that. And we need to, if we do need to say something, we need to pick our time, we need to take the moment, don't we? We need to phrase it, we need to make sure that we really love the person and that we're in a loving frame of mind and we're not doing it out of annoyance, anger, just generally being irritable, irritable, yeah? Obviously, easier said than done and if we could all do that, all of our relationships would be awesome. <laughs> and the other people that um, Paul had to deal with were conspirators, people that were just intending to make his chains more painful to him. And there are some people in life, aren't there, that are just kind of mean um, people that want to make life more painful for you, gossips, troublemakers, bullies. There are people like that. So what does Paul say in the face of people putting us down when they compete with us, people criticising us, and people conspiring to make life harder for us? How does Paul react to all of those people doing those things? In verse 18, he says... But that doesn't matter. <laughs> Whatever their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached. So either way, so I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. Paul makes a choice. Whatever they do, whatever they say, he says, that doesn't matter. He says, I will rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. So how does he do that? Because obviously, it's easier said than done, isn't it? So when we feel like we've been put down, when we feel like we've been criticised or been gossiped about, I kind of have always used this um, visual analogy, like sometimes it can just feel like someone's slimed you. It can just feel like someone's just gone, directed their anger, their misery, their unhappiness, their discontent, and kind of... Bleh, splurged it all over you and you've and you know those moments don't you where it's like wow I've just purely I've just totally been slimed yeah but whatever they're going through it's like there's nothing we can really do about their discontent and their unhappiness we just have to look after our own souls so in those sort of situations you do have a choice in that you can kind of let that stuff seep in. So they've kind of put this stuff on you, thrown this kind of unhappy slime over you, and you can either let it sink into your soul 
and into your heart and dwell on it and go over it, which you do have to do some processing, but you know the difference, don't you, when something can go, like, it can go into your heart, it can, it can sink straight in, can't it? Or we need to put up a deflector shield. So, okay, that's your issue. It's not anything to do with me. And I'm going to forgive you and release you, which is kind of like washing off the slime. And I'm going to get before God and I'm going to ask God to heal my soul and I'm going to forgive you. But know that that's your unhappiness and that's not my thing. And the other thing that Paul does, he kind of puts up this deflector field of faith and trust in God, which is the third habit. Um, so habit three is trusting God to work things out. And if we look at this last passage, he says, For I know that as you pray for me and the Spirit of Jesus helps me, this will lead to my deliverance. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed but I will continue to be bold for Christ as I've been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honour to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. So if you just look at the three faith statements in these verses, this is the next thing that Paul does. He says, for I know, for I fully expect and hope, and I trust. So when we're facing the pain and the picky people and the problems... We need to dig deep into what we know about God. We know that he loves us, that he'll never abandon us. We need to dig into those truths, don't we? That he will be with us always, even until the end of the age. That we know he's given us a spirit of power, of love and self-control. And that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. In the face of criticism and put-downs, we know that God says about us. He says we're children of the living God, that we're precious and high, highly valued. Then we need to ask, what can we expect and hope to come out of this situation? Because it's quite easy when something bad's happened is to be like, oh, and this means this, this, and this, and this, and this, oh, and that's going to mean that, and that, and that. You can kind of go on a downward spiral, can't you? But what Paul does here is he looks up instead of, looking downwards. So he doesn't say, oh, now and this means this is going to happen and the end of the Christian... You know, like he could have gone a proper downward spiral, the fact that he's in prison, couldn't he? Who else is going to look after the churches? Nobody. Does this mean the message... You know, but no, he fully expects and hope. What, what do you expect and hope can, that can come out of this situation? What good is there that could come out of this? And then, do we trust God too to be with us in it? and to bring him honour through it. And this is kind of... Because if our purpose for our life is about Jesus, Paul says at the end, for, me, for to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. If we are living to bring honour to Jesus, if that's our purpose, then we can view all of these issues through that lens. How can this situation bring honour to Jesus? And we can trust him to do that. So, summary. Let's learn from what Paul's 
habits of happiness are in this book of Philippians, that he saw things from God's perspective, that he didn't let other people rob his joy, and he trusted God to work it out. Amen.